G'day there and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr Todd Fraser. Today I'll be speaking with Derek Wheeler, MD, about the article, The Importance of Process of Care and ICU Structure to Improved Outcomes, published in Critical Care Medicine. Derek is an intensive care specialist from the Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Centre and is the co-chair of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Task Force on Models of Care. Welcome to the podcast, Derek. Thank you. It's great to be here. Derek, in the introduction to the guidelines, there was a statement that said that there were some unanswered questions from the 2001 edition of the guidelines, and the task force was in part formed to seek answers to these. What were the questions that were left unanswered? Yeah, I think there were probably four main questions that were left unanswered, and um, it's actually, uh, if you look at the old guideline, they highlight those uh, towards the end of the uh, guideline itself. But basically, they thought the important unanswered questions were, number one, what aspects of critical care are directly linked to improvements in outcome? So, you know, what particular models of critical care were linked most directly with improvement outcomes? Uh, number two, can implementation of specific care protocols lead to improve outcomes? And if so, to what extent does the implementation of these protocols improve outcomes? Number three, does dedicated team-based critical care reduce complications associated with critical illness? And the fourth and final question was, does an immediately available care at the bedside lead to improve outcomes? And really, this last question is uh, really addressing the issue of 24-7 attending physician coverage in the ICU, which uh, was unanswered in the previous draft of the guideline. So does that first one, or the last one, in fact, the task force reviewed the role of the intensivist-led model, which is is obviously a, a very key question for the society in particular. What were the findings of that? What was the impact of an intensive care or intensivist-led model? Well, you know, I don't think the literature has adequately addressed that particular question to the point where we could say an intensivist-led team uh, reduces mortality by, you know, X percent or reduces length of stay by X percent, nor do we know really the economic cost-benefit of having an intensivist-led multidisciplinary team in the ICU. But I think what was clear is that multidisciplinary team-based critical care teams uh, were superior to kind of the old way of doing things where everybody was just, you know, admitted and it was a completely open ICU. What are the things that intensivists bring to the care of patients? Because it seems intuitive that an intensivist, somebody specifically trained to look after intensive care patients, would make a difference. But is there any evidence that suggests what skill set they bring that makes that difference? Well, I mean, I think the literature is still pretty open debate on that particular topic. You know, I think if you look at the difference in outcomes in a closed model versus an open model, you know, the data is, you know, tends to favor the closed models. You know, in particular, I think if you go back to the previous guideline, Peter Provenost and uh, Derek Angus and Todd Dorman all published a systematic review in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2002 and found that high-intensity staffing and what they defined as high-intensity staffing was really that intensivist-led team or mandatory consult with the intensivist on all patients um, was really associated with reduced hospital and ICU mortality as well as reduced ICU length of stay. And so really based on that, the original guideline strongly emphasized 
that critically ill patients uh, should be cared for by a, a multidisciplinary team that's led by an intensivist. And so we really reviewed the newer literature, uh, the more recent literature on that particular topic. And there was a really uh, nice systematic review published by Elizabeth Wilcox and colleagues in 2013, and that was actually in the Society's Journal of Critical Care Medicine. And again, what that particular study found was that high-intensity staffing uh, was again associated with a reduced ICU and uh, hospital mortality. So I, th I think there have been a few otherwise uh, notable studies that have provided some conflicting data that I think I should mention, but you know, I think the Wilcox Systematic Review did include at least one of those studies. One was the study that uh, Mitch Levy published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. And uh, they actually conducted a retrospective review of the Project Impact Database. Uh, and this was a really uh, large study at 123 ICUs and 100 different U.S. hospitals, uh, and I think involved uh, well over 100,000 critically ill adult patients. And what they found is that the odds of hospital mortality were actually higher for patients that were managed by intensivists compared to those who were not. You know, there were some significant questions in the, the editorial on what that impact was and, and what that meant, but I think rather reassuringly, the systematic review by Wilcox uh, included the Levy study, and again, they found that um, the evidence really favored high-intensity staffing, so care that was provided by a, a multidisciplinary team on all patients led by an intensivist or at least had mandatory consultation with the intensivist on all patients. And so I think the, the literature supports that concept, and we felt that we did not need to change that particular recommendation from the original guideline. There were some questions, and again, that question of 24-7 attending physician coverage that was raised by the original guideline, and there, there's been a lot of discussion on this particular topic. And, and I think what we found when we reviewed the relevant literature is really there have been a number of single-center studies and multi-center cohort studies uh, that have compared outcomes in ICUs with 24-7 intensivist coverage versus those without 24-7 intensivist coverage. And the results are really mixed, and, and the data generally support that 24-7 intensivist coverage does not really add any significant incremental benefit, at least in terms of uh, ICU and hospital mortality uh, in those ICUs that have a high-intensity staffing model, again, that so-called closed model uh, of ICU design. Derek, there's obvious implications for having access to 24-7 uh, intensivist coverage. Are we at a position where we can justify this on a widespread scale or is the evidence still patchy enough that uh, it's not ready to be rolled out on that sort of scale yet? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a particularly difficult question, you know, especially given the growing shortage of IC physicians worldwide. You know, I think it's more right now more of a philosophical question than an evidence-based one. You know, I think it's probably safe to say that we would all want our loved ones cared for by an appropriately trained, experienced physician, especially in the ICU setting. But again, the data really don't support that, uh, at least in terms of having 24-7 coverage. And so, you know, I guess what we discussed, and we discussed this particular issue a lot, maybe we were using the wrong outcome metrics. You know, maybe we should be looking at 
quality of outcomes, you know, long-term quality of life. Perhaps 24-7 attending physician coverage improves the long-term quality of of life as opposed to mortality. Um, What does it do to the patient-family experience uh, when care is provided in the ICU in a high-intensity staffing model and you have 24-7 coverage? So I think those are the questions that still need to be addressed and that still uh, really remain unanswered. But at least for right now, and I think we stated this in the guideline, there's no evidence to support widespread implementation of 24-7 intensivist coverage in the ICU, uh, at least based on the current data. You know, I think we're left with, you know, eventually uh, a lot of the payers and then, you know, perhaps some of our patients will eventually demand this. And I know the trend is moving, at least here in the United States, uh, that more and more ICUs are, are moving to a model of 24-7 attending coverage, if that's feasible. But again, I think the shortage of ICU physicians is really making that problematic. Do we have an understanding at the moment of what the current environment is, how many intensive care units in the States are in fact covered to that sort of degree? You know, I think uh, many of the academic medical centers uh, do provide 24-7 attending coverage. I think, you know, there are a lot of, of smaller intensive care units that don't have the ICU physicians available to provide that care, uh, you know, which really is um, forced, you know, research into uh, telemedicine and, and physician extender models. And I think there's been a lot of exciting research in those areas. You know, I think there's been um, at least one pediatric study that looked at 24-7 attending coverage in the pediatric intensive care environment. And I think, again, that's a trend that most larger regional referral centers, children's hospitals are are moving towards 24-7 coverage. But again, the smaller ICUs, they're just not enough ICU physicians to provide care in those settings. And and I suspect that the same is true in adult ICUs, if, if not more so. You mentioned tele-ICU there. What is the data now saying about the role of tele-ICU to extend the coverage of, a, of an intensivist to those smaller units? Well, I think, um, you know, again, that was one of the things that we wanted to emphasize, you know, especially uh, from a process of care standpoint. One of the studies that we did look at was the U.S. Uh, critical Illness and Injury Trials Group Critical Al- Illness Outcome Study. Again, this was another large database study uh, that involved 69 different centers across the United States, and they um, really looked at 24-7 intensivist staffing as well as the kind of the closed versus open ICU model. And what they found is that there was really no difference in hospital mortality uh, with 24-7 intensivist staffing. In addition, what they found is that there was no difference in mortality in the closed versus the open ICU model. And what they theorized is that if if there were a large number of protocols in in these intensive care units, uh, I think the median number of protocols per ICU was around 19, so a lot of different protocols. And so we extended that finding, and there was a systematic review of uh, 11 before and after observational studies of uh, tele-ICU uh, coverage, specifically an intensivist who directed care remotely via telemedicine, and that was associated with lower ICU and hospital mortality among critically ill patients. And so we think that um, at least our group that uh, reviewed the literature and, and drafted the supplement believe that 
there is a growing body of, of literature to support the concept that if you have the right protocols, if you have the right key processes in your ICU, and as long as you have somebody who can uh, perform some of the uh, life-saving procedures, um, the intensivist doesn't necessarily need to be physically present in the ICU. They can direct care or um, assist with care uh, remotely via telemedicine. And I think that's a model that potentially offers um, a, a solution to some of the shortage uh, of ICU physicians uh, that we're experiencing currently. You mentioned those protocols now, and in the document that we're talking about, you refer to some of the, the implications or the, the outcome benefits of implementing certain protocols and checklists into the ICU. Can you tell us about those? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, again, that the uh, U.S. Critical Illness and Injury Trials Group study had a, a large number of protocols in each ICU, and I, I think the key is, it, we believe, based on our review, is that you have a standardized protocols, especially around some of the key processes uh, for things such as uh, uh, how you care for patients that are on the ventilator, how you care for patients that have central lines, how you um, prescribe nutritional support, antimicrobial use, even uh, some of the uh, protocols that are now being tested to limit the number of ancillary tests that are obtained, the sedation protocols. I think there are a lot of protocols uh, that have been studied, so many, in fact, that we really didn't list them in this particular supplement. We felt it was important just to highlight that standardized bundles and standardized key processes are probably more important. Um, and we highlighted some of those in the, the supplement, but we didn't, you know, perform an exhaustive list of all the protocols that were necessary. And I think that's something that probably deserves further study. You know, that was one of the unanswered questions in the original guideline, which are the protocols that every single ICU has to have in order to provide efficient, safe, effective care. And that was a question that we felt we we didn't or we couldn't rather uh, answer uh, with the current literature that was available. Are there any negatives to uh, the implementation of those sorts of protocols on a widespread basis? We certainly hear that people rail against the idea of this uh, in that it takes away the the independence or the the art of providing good quality care, certainly at the uh, specialist level. Um, But Mm -hmm. are there any other negatives to that sort of uh, level of care? Yeah, I mean... yeah, I, th- I think you do hear those complaints and, and those criticisms, you know, the, the whole concept that um, this is cookbook medicine and, you know, certainly patients are not widgets, you know, they're a little bit different. And so um, I would argue that in, in most of these key processes, you know, there's really not a lot of need for variation or customization of, of care for things like how you dress a central line or how you uh, manage ventilator circuits and things like that. So I think a lot of the hospital-acquired infection care bundles make a lot of sense and have uh, really good support uh, in the literature. Um, I think there's always room for innovation, and and that's another criticism that I often hear with these key processes and, and, you know, over-standardization in the ICU. I think the key and the important issue is, 
um, having somebody who who monitors and measures the effectiveness of of these key processes and these um, standardized bundles and protocols. You know, you can't necessarily just implement these things and and then ignore them completely. I think that was another key factor that the U.S. Critical Illness and Injury Trials Group found is that, um, you know, when they felt that uh, having a dedicated ICU medical director and nurse manager, you know, two individuals who can monitor these particular care processes and these standardized bundles uh, for their effectiveness over time was another important issue or, or asset to have in your ICU. And so it's interesting, if you look back at the original guideline, there was a large study that looked at the number of ICUs across the United States that had dedicated ICU medical directors, and I think less than half uh, of the ICUs surveyed at the time had a a dedicated ICU medical director, and and I think at least in the United States and and some of the surveys that have been performed in Europe and, and Australia and Canada suggest that most ICUs actually do now have a dedicated ICU medical director and a dedicated nursing director. And, and I think that those are the two individuals that really need to work collaboratively and, and really monitor these standardized key processes. And, and then if, if new evidence comes uh, available or if they find that, you know, for example, they continue to have ventilator-associated infections despite you know, compliance with whatever bundle that you're using in your ICU, then I think they can look to try to modify the bundle as necessary. But I think as long as they do that in a um, directed fashion and and using quality improvement science, you know, I I think that's really the key. There are some studies that have uh, noted that protocols can be harmful. And, And so I think, again, having individuals to monitor outcomes and monitor things like length of stay and mortality and patient family experience and ventilator days really on an ongoing basis is important to monitor how these uh, protocols and bundles are, are implemented. That then brings us to your um, your third recommendation, which I found the most interesting in the, the document, which is that uh, measurement of processes and of structures and outcomes for intensive care patients is essential in the improvement of care delivery. Can you explain what you meant by that statement? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think as the old adage goes, if you want to improve something, measure it. And and I think that's certainly, um, at least the other members on the task force felt that that was a key part of uh, quality improvement science and implementation science. And, you know, I, I think having the ability to monitor not only the compliance with these standardized processes and these bundles, but also to monitor how they're effective uh, and, and whether they actually drive improvement in outcomes is is really crucial. And, and so I think that's a key issue is, is to develop your monitoring systems and your measurement systems where you can follow these things closely, you know, as, as frequently as you need to, you know, for some uh, metrics, it's, you know, going to be monthly. For some, it may be daily. And and so developing information systems that are capable of measuring these processes um, and monitoring these processes is going to be important. And that's, you know, really one of the, the other conclusions that we had is that institutional support 
for comprehensive QI programs should be provided. And we felt some of the issues with measurement are, are fairly labor intensive and cost money. And, and so the institutions should support that so we can actually make sure that we're doing what's right for our patients and, and the, the bundles and the protocols that we're using are actually a driving improvement as opposed to you know making outcomes worse. The key question then, of course, is what we should be measuring. Is there any evidence around the particular measures that make a difference to overall outcomes? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the standard measures, you know, ICU mortality, ICU length of stay, especially when severity adjusted, um, are important. You know, I think one of the things that historically we've done a, a poor job of measuring is, at least in, in critical care medicine, is the long-term quality of life. Um, you know, I think we're starting to monitor those and, and measure those in some of our research studies. So, you know, I think the therapeutic hypothermia and, and pediatric cardiopulmonary arrest trial that just was recently published used uh, long-term quality of life as a primary outcome. So I think we're starting to measure those things, um, and it, we need to do that more. But I think outcome metrics like uh, ICU length of stay and severity-adjusted mortality duration of mechanical ventilation, you know, all of your hospital-acquired conditions such as central line infections, catheter-associated urinary tract infections, your ventilator-associated complications, all of those things are important to measure and probably should be measured uh, and compared and benchmarked across different ICUs. Once change has been implemented, it's clear that benefits can be obtained by implementing some of these strategies. But one of the key issues is sustaining that change. You refer to our need to create a burning deck to motivate ongoing behavioural change. Have you got any thoughts on how that can be orchestrated, as it were? Yeah, that's that's really probably one of the most difficult issues, right? So, you know, I think in, in our own ICU, we've had issues sustaining some of our, our improvements over time. You know, so it, it's something that I think requires further research. We really need to identify how you sustain some of the improvements that you've made, you know, because a lot of these particular processes take a lot of work. And I think the key is, is to really embed it into the daily workflow. And so it becomes a, a part of what you're doing. And, and I think sometimes, you know, a, a simple uh, use of language, you know, one of the things that we did in our own ICU is to move away from calling things bundles because bundles denoted that we were still testing and, and still improving. So uh, when we really developed uh, something to the point where we felt the evidence uh, definitely supported that it was effective and, and safe and, and actually improved outcomes, uh, we moved from calling something a bundle to calling something a key process or a daily workflow. And, and I think, you know, that further research in that area is certainly necessary, but I think, again, having uh, the individuals like a, a full-time dedicated medical director and nursing director to monitor these things over time and to assist with really making it a part of the daily work um, as opposed to an improvement project is, is really crucial and key to being able to sustain improvements. One of the key areas in improving people's behaviour and performance is that of education and training, but it seems to be the sacrificial lamb in a way uh, when the budget is stretched, funding to education and training is often sacrificed. Is there any evidence around the role of education and training in patient outcomes? 
Uh, you know, we didn't really address that particular question in this guideline. You know, I think, you know, it definitely is important. Um, we fully recognize that there is definitely a relationship between volumes and outcomes, and, and probably some of that volume is experience. So training and education, particularly in this day and age, is, is key and is an important issue. Um, I do worry that uh, with the focus on cutting costs, you know, and with some of the changes that have been made, particularly in graduate medical education, that we really need to focus new research on how we train and, and educate not only physicians, but also nurses and respiratory therapists and allied health providers in the ICU. So I, I think that's going to become a particularly important issue in the years to come, and, and I would say that that's probably an area that requires further research. How can you effectively train and educate and in, keep uh, an individual's uh, skills sharp, you know, particularly if they don't use a particular skill set uh, frequently? How, how can you maintain that expertise at the bedside? I think those are all going to become very important things to uh, really look into and research in the coming years. And then I know the Society of Critical Care Medicine feels that that's a particularly important issue as well. Finally, Derek, the task force reviewed the 2001 recommendations and whether or not there was new evidence to support or refute them. And the conclusion seems to be that there's insufficient evidence to change any of them at this time. What research do you think is a priority in terms of further investigating those areas? Yeah, I mean, I think perhaps probably the closest that we're getting is is really looking at the 24-7 attending physician coverage issue. You know, I think, again, you know, as I discussed previously, I think perhaps maybe we're looking at the wrong metrics for that. And so, you know, I think we need to look at uh, the patient and family experience as well as mortality. I think we absolutely need to look at long-term quality of life outcomes. But, you know, I think one of the things that we we felt was really needed was we, we definitely know that the high-intensity staffing is superior to the low-intensity staffing. So, but what, what about the high-intensity staffing is key? Does it need to be an intensivist-led team that's actually providing care on all the patients in the ICU? Or can you just have a mandatory consultation with the ICU team for all the patients? And that's a question that has, has not really been adequately researched in the currently available literature. And I think that's something particularly uh, with the issue of, of how you apply telemedicine uh, will need to be looked at and examined very closely in the coming years. Derek, in summary, what are the key features of process change in an ICU that impact on patient outcomes? The key features. So I think, you know, again, having an intensivist-led, high-performing, multidisciplinary team, and I think the key issue there is multidisciplinary. The team has to be collaborative. You know, I think the multidisciplinary groups bring different areas of expertise and different skill sets, and I think having one person coordinate all that to provide and integrate the care at the bedside really is, is the best model for effective care delivery in the ICU setting. I think process improvement really is the backbone of achieving high-quality ICU outcomes. And, you know, I think really developing an expertise uh, in quality improvement science and implementation science is really, really important. And, and I think, you know, medical directors and, and the, the clinical directors and the nursing directors of, of all ICUs really should be trained 
uh, in process improvement science. I think that's a, a important skill set that we need to make sure that um, the leaders in the ICU uh, have. Um, I think developing standardized protocols and, and the care bundles and order sets to facilitate uh, really measurement of, of the processes and, and see if you can link those with the outcomes uh, is another important feature. And then I think really the institutional support for the quality improvement programs and, and to really study and implement things like tele-ICUs, particularly in this day and age when we're dealing with uh, shortages of, of nurses and physicians in the ICU, I think will be an important feature for the coming years ahead. Derek, congratulations on the publication of the uh, position statement and thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it and it was an honour to be here. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care podcast please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information and podcasts. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Todd Fraser. Mark your calendar to attend the 45th Critical Care Congress to be held February 20th to 24th, 2016 in Orlando, Florida, USA. This five-day event will bring together more than 6,000 members of the critical care community from around the world and will offer opportunities to share creative and stimulating ideas, make valuable connections, and obtain inspired perspectives. Visit www.sccm.org congress to register and for more information. Todd Fraser, M.D., is an intensivist and retrieval physician based on the Sunshine Coast of Queensland, Australia. Dr. Fraser completed his undergraduate training in Melbourne before undertaking specialist training in hospitals in Geelong and Sydney. His specialist career has included time as a director of intensive care at Mackay Base Hospital in Queensland, regional director of training for Care Flight Medical Services, and as a staff intensivist and flight physician. Dr. Fraser has extensive experience in critical care education, including simulation, web-based training tools, examination preparation courses, and instructional video. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email i criticalcare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.